Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Sharon Taylor. Uh, Sharon is the owner of Paragon Print and Marketing Solutions, a business which provides complete print and design support to cater for all the marketing print needs of its clients. Uh, Sharon, hello. Hi, Scott. Good morning. Good morning, Sharon. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. Certainly is a lovely day for it. Um, Beautiful. It is. And I suppose we should sort of start this by addressing the elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that we are recording this in early June 2021. And we are still very much within social restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've been somewhat in the grip of that crisis in one way, shape or form for the best part of the last 14 months. Um, Albeit we're seeing some real green shoots now and we're hopefully moving through towards the end of it. Um, It's had a significant impact on businesses of all shapes and sizes. So I'd be interested to understand to what extent it's affected yourself and your business. Yes, um, it it has been a quite an arduous journey I think for us all um, as a, a business um, in the print sector we have obviously been affected by the, the, the hospitality trade um, and various other industries have impacted us in a, in a big way um, but obviously we're there to support um, all of those businesses um, on their return and we've been working really closely um, in offering things like bacterial laminates and things to help uh, when they're producing their their literature, etc. Um, with regards to our business, we we've been impacted significantly with regards to our cash flow. Uh, last year, we, we we stood a loss of nearly a third of our turnover, which is uh, is huge. Um, but in in light of that, we've re-strategized. We've 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 used the time to restructure our business. Um, Without losing staff, we've had one casualty out of the 13 of us. Um, but basically, we're all back on board. We're all in the building at the moment, producing lots of high volume print. Um, and we hope to be for, you know, the, the future. Um, we've gone more digital, um, I suppose is the right way, um, with an instant print process. Um, and we've been forced down that road as people's budgets have been cut. People don't want huge runs of print at the moment, so we've had to adapt to that um, and retrain our staff, keep the morale high. Uh, we've invested in new equipment, even with the loss of some turnover last year. Um, so there's lots of positives come out of this, um, which we've we've really had to um, push forward and and think positively rather than. You know, let the pandemic grip us uh, emotionally, so we're all in a negative mode. Yeah, it certainly seems that you've sort of taken this in your stride as well as you possibly can. You've sort of tried to innovate, as you mentioned there as well. So do you sort of come out of the last 14 months really feeling that you've learned something from this quite difficult and challenging experience, would you say? 
Absolutely. I think um, as a small team, um, we've been brought together. Um, the support we've had from our staff has been amazing. Um, whether that's down to leadership and the fact that we are a tight-knit team, I'm not sure. But all I know is when our backs have been against the wall, everybody's come out fighting for the business, for our survival. Um, and we've come out of that stronger. So as a team, where the communication's been um a lot stronger, if you like, um, and the respect for everybody. You know, we've all been in it together, so that's that's been a journey. Um, and then they've all been on board with the new strategy of where the business needs to be now, following the pandemic, um, for us, for, for everyone's survival, really. Mm. And just thinking about people for a second there, Sharon, um, would you say that sort of mental well-being has held up well over this time as well and how they've applied themselves? Because I can imagine particularly in the early weeks of the uh, the pandemic when there was a lot of uncertainty, there might have been quite a lot of that. And as sort of a business leader, you may well have had to have a few sort of quite close yeah. and quite frank conversations. Absolutely. The, the, the communication was absolutely paramount when we first shut the doors in March last year. Um, we talked about it. We were listening to the news. We knew the orders had stopped coming in. And all of a sudden we have to say, right, everybody, see you on the other side. But we're closing for however long we need to close for. And that was March last year. We did a simple WhatsApp group um, and we did weekly phone calls and we just kept in touch with everybody. Um, but we have been fortunate that very quickly after we closed the doors, we were able to reopen and service some of our accounts. So the guys were furloughed and using the flex, flexible furlough. Um, so that helped. But I really did see a difference in people's emotional well-being when they returned to work. Uh, there was some nervousness. And these are guys that have worked here 25 plus years in some cases. Um, but just that sort of being at home for the first time in their entire career um, and then coming back to, to work under obviously COVID safe conditions did, did put us in, in a different environment for, for quite some time. And, and obviously we're still in that now with regards to our COVID restrictions and safe working conditions. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're certainly not out of the other side of it just yet, although we are seeing some real sort of green shoots, aren't we? And that's uh, that's really, really positive. Absolutely. Yeah. And thinking about that as well, sort of what's got us to this point, um, you made use of the furlough scheme, of course. And by and large, do you think that some of the government support measures have really helped business? Or do you think in some areas it has been left very much to sort of fend for itself and been left to its own devices? The, the, the furlough scheme's been um, a light, well, a, a lifesaver really for the business, um, and the flexible side of the furlough as well to be able to, you know, utilise that. Uh, we have had some funding from our local Stockport council, um, which has supported us as well. Um, so yes, I mean, obviously, it would have been. We still struggled, and we've still been hit hard. But at the end of the day, um, we've had, we've reached out taking all the support that's been handed to us uh, and it's been gratefully received. That's really, really encouraging as well. And just for maybe one or two of the sort of younger viewers that might be tuning into this uh, podcast um, as well, um, there are a few people out there that might be looking at the current labour market and are quite disheartened by what they're seeing. But I suppose the reality of the post-COVID world is going to be that there are going to be opportunities out there. And it should be that 
young talent coming through should be looking for opportunities now more so than ever, really, shouldn't they? Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, I mean, as a business, as I say, we're re-strategizing. Um, and I like to think that by the end of the year, we will be recruiting. And we're already looking for an additional salesperson right now. Um, they don't have to be from our industry. We just want someone positive and willing to go out there and, and bring in business and be part of our team. Um, but also on the technical side, we'll be looking for people to operate machinery as we, we bring more products in-house that we used to outsource. So, yeah, in, in a time when things looked really difficult, we're looking to reinvest and um, definitely employ extra people and the use of today and their energy uh, 100% is an addition to any business so and I think that strategy is going to be incredibly important to the build back better agenda isn't it because we think of building and we instantly think of construction but that's not necessarily the case here because there are going to be a lot of people out there um, that are out of work there are going to be a lot of businesses out there that need to recruit and I think we're going to see much more of an open-minded recruitment and more of an emphasis on sort of training than ready-made skills aren't we because what this pandemic has taught us is that every single day is a school day and there is that room to learn new skills and there's going to be a hell of a lot of people out there upskilling and moving into new industries over the coming months I'm sure. Uh, 100% and the, the, the training and learning new skills um, you know as I mentioned earlier a lot of our guys have been here 25 plus years but they're still learning every day because the technology within print changes and software comes in we're relearning all the time um, and I would advise anybody out there to get themselves um, into a working environment as soon as possible and train on site, you know, be part of the team. I think we learn, obviously, there's an academic uh, requirement, but, you know, being uh, on site within an environment, um, you learn so much more um, and hopefully it's more rewarding as well. I know you've mentioned already that, of course, it has sort of hit you quite hard on the financial side of things, uh, the COVID pandemic. But by and large, as we sort of move out of it for good, do you think you ultimately are going to come out of this much stronger for it? Yeah, we're, we're going to be a different shape than what, than what we were, um, you know, getting on for 18 months ago. But um, it, it's just part of life, isn't it? Certainly in business. Mm. You have to adapt. To survive, you have to adapt. And I think as business leaders, um, my husband and I, we've been constantly eye on the ball of where we're going, what's around the corner, to the best of our ability. We haven't got a crystal ball. But, um, you know, and constantly adapting and keeping going and instead of sticking your head in the sand, being aware of the impact of those numbers, those figures uh, and dropping sales, and uh, having a strategy to work around it, work with it, uh, and being brave, you know, making those decisions and investments when it seems difficult to do so. And I think that is probably what's helped our team because mm. Mike and I have not given up the ghost. We have, you know, communicated that we're strong, we're staying, we're going nowhere. This business is as important to Mike and my husband and I as it is to the rest of the team, and we all need to. Um, you know, helping our survival. And I think that's what's helped because we're all in it together and that's been proven, I think. Yeah, exactly. That sort of leading by example and instilling that sense of community. And I think that sort of sense of unison, if you will, um, that sort of close knit feel, 
I think that's something that hopefully we won't lose sight of as we move out of the pandemic. And we've seen that in the wider community as well, to a degree, haven't we, when we've had people sort of congregating on their doorsteps, clapping for NHS and frontline workers, for example. And that's hopefully something that will be here in the long run. Yes, definitely. And um, I mean, we've reached out to um, other businesses in our area. Um, we've, as I say, we've had help through the council, but other businesses have helped us, and we've bounced ideas off each other. And I think collaboration and, and networking as a business um, is one of our biggest tools. Um, just being open and talking to people within our industry, even our competitors, having conversations with our competitors, because um, we're all in it together. And um, you know, there's enough work out there for all of us. Um, it's just great to have them on our side rather than as an enemy, for want of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme this morning, Sharon, just because I'm conscious we're starting to run short of time, um, I do want to talk about what the future might bring. And I know that we've discussed already that we don't have a crystal ball and we can't see exactly what's on the horizon, but we are hopefully now in that period where we're moving toward the post-COVID world since we are recording this in June 2021. So with that in mind, what do you feel is next on the horizon for you in the business and where ideally would you like yourselves to be this time next year? I think the first thing we've, we've strategized, um, a slight um, difference in approach. Um, some of our products, we are um, changing and adapting, um, bringing bringing things inside rather than outsourcing. Um, so that's going to change our our landscape a bit within the building here. Um, but I think our main focus has been cost savings as well. Um, I think we we didn't have a leaking bucket, but you know we we definitely have some small holes. So. Um, those have been filled. Um, so I think our future is a much tighter ship um, with a much more focused view of where we're going and uh, what we need to do um, over the next 12, 12 months, uh, two years um, for our survival. Um, so, yeah, I think clarity really is the main thing that's come mm. out of it um, and where we're going and what we're doing. Exactly right. And hopefully as we start to see the economic recovery take some form of shape and we can understand what the threat of new variants might be with the COVID situation, for instance, we can start to really understand what kind of course business is going to be taking over the uh, the next few months. And I think as yeah. that picture does start to clear up, Sharon, it would actually be wonderful to catch up and have you on the show again to discuss how the business Thank is you. doing, because it's been a real eye opener and a fantastic um, experience having you join us today. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks ever so much, Sharon. And since we are not quite out of this yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Will do. Thank you. It was a pleasure to welcome Sharon Taylor, owner of Paragon Print and Marketing Solutions, onto the programme today. And uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, to discuss his take on the ongoing COVID situation and also his hopes for the months to come. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the 
crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. 
Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so 
on different levels. I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, 
one thing that's on everyone's lips. Um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. 
Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. 
Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.